Good morning, church. My name is Stephanie, and I'll be sharing God's word with you this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. If you got a Bible from the back cart, you'll find it on page 598. And a wise man shared with me this morning, if you got a Bible from anywhere else, it's going to be on a different page. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, give you a moment to get there. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy, have already perished, and forever they no more have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your heads. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going." Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all, happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is God's word for us today. He said, I was in my early 40s, with a lot of life before me, when a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays, talking about the options, and talking about sweet time. I asked him when it sank in that this might really be the real end. How's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what do you do? And he said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. <laughs> if you know this song, you know it is country and western, right? 
And I loved deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. He said, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't, and I became a friend a friend would like to have. And all of a sudden, going fishing wasn't such an imposition, and I went three times that year, I lost my dad. Well, I finally read the good book, and I took a good, long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. And then I went skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, bull riding. I loved deeper, I spoke sweeter, gave forgiveness I'd been denying. Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying, like tomorrow was a gift. Tim McGraw is the singer of this song. You probably recognize it. Some of you, it's a very popular song. 2004 came out, but I hear it quite often even now. It's the song about a man who, when confronted with his father's death, says that that was what spurred him to really live. And that's the theme. Live like you were dying, like tomorrow was a gift. And this is kind of what Ecclesiastes is about. I don't know if... Tim McGraw has read Ecclesiastes or not, I really don't know anything about him, but this is a truth that we have been seeing in Ecclesiastes. The theme of death has been consistent. And the truth is, we're all dying, right? This is what Kohelet keeps trying to tell us. So how do we live like we're dying? What should the reality of death teach us about how to live? And so that's what we want to talk about a little bit this morning. The big idea we want to see from this passage this morning is that in the midst of death and judgment, there can be joy. In the midst of death and judgment, there can be joy. So how do we find this joy? Well, it starts by understanding the sovereignty of God. That's what we see in verse 1. It's kind of a thesis that sets for us love or hate our fate is in God's hands. Notice verse 1. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And so he makes a very interesting statement here. And it's something that he's repeated time and time again. We do not know what our future holds. And here he says, whether it's love or whether it's hate, We have no control, we have no idea as to what our experience of life is going to be. But we do know one thing. It is in the hand of God. God does know, and God is in control. Now, this is contrary to very common belief in our world today. uh, You you hear it a lot. Uh, There's a very famous poem called Invictus, written by a man named William Henley. And the last two lines of it, you've probably heard before. It goes, he says this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Have you ever heard that? Now, Ecclesiastes is saying that is simply not true. God alone is the master of our fate. And if we are going to have any hope of enjoying life, we must understand this fact about God's sovereignty over us. And we must humbly seek to be reconciled to him because mankind is under the judgment and wrath, what I think he refers to here as the hate of God. This is primarily seen in death. 
Now you said, wait a second, Greg. I thought God is love. What's this talk about the hatred of God? Well, God is love. It's very clearly taught in the Bible. But we misunderstand the nature and character of God if we think that that means that he cannot hate. The Bible clearly teaches that he does hate. Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 11:5. The Lord hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs 6:16 6, through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Part of what it means to fear God is to hate what God hates. This is what Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth. God's hatred of sin and the wicked lead to his anger and his wrath, which Romans 1.18 says is being poured out upon mankind. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God's hatred and anger are most clearly seen in the evil of death. This is God's judgment upon man's rebellion against God. It goes way back to the beginning, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, as God created man, put him in the garden, he gave him this one command. He said, from, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Death, as the judgment of God upon man under the sun, has been a continual theme of Ecclesiastes. And Kohelet, in these verses in chapter 9, are going to focus on death in this chapter. And we're going to look at four truths this morning about death. Now, I realize death is not something that we like to talk about. Most of us feel it's uncomfortable to talk about death. But it's something that we've seen that Kohelet is open about and speaks often about because there is an essential wisdom to be gained as we contemplate death. So let's look at these four truths here this morning. The first truth is we are all under the judgment of death, verses 2 through 3a. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all of us. We've seen this theme throughout Ecclesiastes. He's bemoaned in chapter 2 the fact that the the wise and the fool both die just alike, and so it kind of obliterates all the advantages of, that the wise might think that they have. We saw in chapter 3, he said that man dies just like the animals. And so here he talks about religious observance being not enough 
to remove the punishment of death. All of these things he describes in, in, in verse 2 here, these contrasts between the righteous and the wicked, the clean and the unclean, the one who sacrifices, the one who does not sacrifice. These, these are ideas and terms that all come from the Old Testament, the Old Testament law and its teaching is about how the Israelites were to be religiously observant. But what he, the, the point here that he's making is all this, if you're the most religious person, all of your religious observance will not remove the punishment of death because the problem is much deeper than just some kind of external activity. The problem goes deep inside the human heart. And that's the second thing we see about death here this morning. Death is the just judgment for evil human hearts. Notice verse 3b. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. This is where we get to the heart of the matter, literally. And this is what the religious practices of verse 2 cannot fix. In fact, the purpose of the Old Testament law was to reveal to us this evil condition of our human hearts. Romans 7, verses 7 and 13 tell us that this was, in fact, the purpose of the law. Paul writes, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law being that which was good? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see, all the religious activity of verse 2 doesn't change the evil heart. What it does, in fact, is it exposes the evil heart. Like the Apostle Paul, Kohelet here is acknowledging that even the good, religiously observant Jew still has a heart full of evil and insanity. The Apostle Paul, who was one of the most religious Jewish men of his day, seems to confirm this in his own self-assessment in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 24. Notice what Paul says here as he talks about his own recognition, his own realization of the sin within himself. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Can you relate to the madness and insanity of doing what you don't want to do and not doing what you want to do? This is the total depravity of the human heart that deserves the just judgment of God. And this goes way back to the beginning. This was the result 
of the fall when Adam and Eve took the, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the corruption spread throughout the human race so that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, we see that the Lord says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man's evil heart grieves God and brings his judgment of death. The third truth about death we see in this passage is that death ends the opportunities of life. Notice verses 4 through 6. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy have all perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun." Coelity in these verses suggests that while we are alive, there's the possibility of a reward and that we can participate in love or hate or envy. These are, these are the many possibilities and opportunities that we have in life. But when we die, it's over. Our time under the sun is done. We have no more share in anything that is done under the sun. The implication here is that there is something to be learned or experienced or some wisdom to be gained that is limited to this life. And once we die, the opportunity is gone. The fourth truth we learn about death here is that death is unpredictable and sometimes sudden in verses 11 to 12. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Time and chance, or we, the better translation might be time and circumstance happen to all. We do not know when we'll be, we will be caught in the evil net or snared at an evil time. <clears throat> this certainly and probably primarily refers to death that can cut short a promising life, but it may also refer to unexpected and disastrous events that change the expected course and outcomes of our best efforts. Two years ago, I lost a good friend and business partner of 17 years to COVID. He was only 56 years old. And uh, he had a wife and four kids, and I can tell you that they had many plans for the future that were just suddenly cut short. They were just ended. This feeling of loss can be devastating, and his funeral was the saddest event I have ever been to in my life. And I know that many of you here have experienced this as well. Many of you have lost spouses or close family members, as Danny mentioned in his prayer. Some of you just in the last few months. You have experienced this evil under the sun. So we cannot count on tomorrow. As Tim McGraw's song says, tomorrow is a gift. So this is death under the sun, these four truths about death. 
But what's amazing about this passage here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is that in the midst of all this death, Kohelet talks about hope and joy. And in this we see the love of God. And so I want to look at two ways that we see the love of God. Uh, let me see. My uh, notes are messed up here. Hold on a second. Um, okay, yeah, the love of God we see in two ways here in this passage. The first is that the living have hope. The living have hope. We read verses 4 and 5, but notice again verse 4, he who is joined with all the living has hope. This is the only time this word appears in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then he says in verse 5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. So what is the hope that he's talking about here in these passages? Well, he says, the living know that they will die. Understanding the judgment of death, that we are enemies of God under his judgment, can lead a person to seek reconciliation with God. And as long as a person is alive, there is hope of reconciliation with God. Remember, the, the conclusion and the consistent theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is to fear God. And part of fearing God is to humble ourselves before Him and seek His forgiveness and mercy. This is what Psalm 130, verse 3, teaches us. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Because of our sin, Lord, we cannot stand before you, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It's part of the fear of God, is to seek His forgiveness. Psalm 103 is all about <clears throat> the mercy and forgiveness of God, but a few verses here really highlight this. Notice Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. <clears throat> For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards who? Toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to who? Those who fear him. I think Jesus picked up this idea in, in Matthew 7, this idea of God having compassion on those who fear him like a father has compassion on his children. And Jesus taught us to approach God as, as a father, as a child comes to his father. Notice Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus paints a beautiful picture of what it's like to seek God's forgiveness, to seek God's mercy. Notice this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, it's interesting that Jesus assumes that we are evil here, but if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Notice here that Jesus is encouraging us to come to God, to ask to seek for his good gifts. 
And he promises that as we do this, he will give us good gifts. This is part of reconciliation with God. And because God is good, he gives good gifts. And that leads us to the second thing we see in this passage about the love of God, and that is that God has good gifts for us to be enjoyed in this life. Verses 7 through 10. Notice verse 7 talks about God's approval. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. It's possible to live life under the approval of God. Verse 9 talks about God's gift of life, your vain life. Notice how he says this here. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Now, we've talked about vanity, that word havel, right? It doesn't mean meaningless. I don't think that's the best translation. It's puzzling. It's frustrating. It can be difficult. But it is the gift of God. God has given us this vain life as a gift to be enjoyed. As we learn to fear God and we ask and seek for his gifts, we can find his gift of enjoyment. And what's interesting in these verses is that you don't have to do extravagant things like skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing and bull riding, right? But joy is to be found in the simple things of life that we all experience, like eating and drinking, marriage and friendship, and everyday activities of life and work. Notice verse 7. Go eat your bread with a joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Eating and drinking are two things that we need to do to survive, right? Isn't it amazing that we can find so much enjoyment in these basic necessities of life? That's a gift of God. And verse 8 talks about wearing white garments and oil. He says, let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, in Solomon's day or in Kohelet's day, wearing white garments and putting oil on your head would be a sign that you're going to some kind of celebration. And so today we would think of it like going to a wedding. We put on our best clothes. We want to look and smell nice, right, for the party. The idea of this verse is that is, is of a person celebrating every day because he says, let your clothes always be white. Let oil never be lacking in your head. Live every day as if it's a celebration. It, it's, it represents a positive and joyful attitude toward life. And if, if we can have this kind of attitude toward life, this is the gift of God. Verse 9 paints, paints the picture of a rich relationship with those we love that brings enjoyment to life talks about marriage here. Marriage is the most common and often the most significant love relationship that has such a profound effect on our experience of life. But I think the joy of love does not need to be limited to the marriage relationship, but can and should be spilling over to all family and friends and especially to our church family, right? This is where we learn to love one another. This is where we experience the love of God most clearly. Jesus taught this in John 15, 11 through 12. He said, These things I have spoken to you that, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Of course, in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, Jesus talks about these themes repeatedly of joy and especially of love. And so to love and to be loved is certainly one of, if not the greatest, of God's gifts that brings us great joy. And verse 10 points to eagerness and enjoyment of work. 
whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. The phrase, whatever your hand finds to do, refers to all the opportunities that come our way in life where we are engaged in work and thought and knowledge and wisdom. Whatever your opportunity is, whether it's your dream opportunity or not, the encouragement here is to do it with all your might. Make the most of your opportunities under the sun, for you have a part to play. You have wisdom to learn. You have ways to grow. And once the opportunities are gone, they're gone for good. So this is the picture of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're living in a world under the judgment of God, and that judgment is particularly experienced in the evil of death. But in the midst of this judgment, there is also the possibility of experiencing God's love and joy. There is hope for living to experience this love and joy, or there is hope for the, for the living to experience this love and joy if they can understand and respond appropriately to God's judgment of death upon them. In the midst of death and judgment, there can be joy. As I think about Ecclesiastes chapter 9, I think about the COVID pandemic, or at least my experience of the COVID pandemic. And as I look back on uh, COVID, it was a time of great loss and grief, but also a time of sweet joy for me personally. And I know everybody's experience is a little bit different. I've already shared with you how I lost a close friend and business partner uh, during COVID. I knew two other men who also passed away and died of COVID. Um, and my own children suffered a lot of loss during COVID. My, my son, Caleb, was on a basketball team. They won their regional tournament right before COVID lockdown started. And so they had, a great, they had great potential to win the national tournament, but they never, they never could go because it was canceled and, and it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was never uh, repeated. My, my oldest daughter, Cora, she was a senior in college when the lockdowns happened, and so she missed out on her final semester as a senior with all of her friends, and she, she had no graduation. And so, you know, like all of us, everything was shut down, everything was canceled, and uh, this was a loss for many of us, and many of us lost possibly people that we loved and cared about. But one of the surprising things that happened for us in our family was COVID was that we enjoyed great food and family fun. My, uh, I, I'm kind of spoiled anyway. My wife is a fantastic cook, and she's taught all four of our kids how to cook. I'm kind of the only one in the family who doesn't know how to cook, but <laughs> I'm really skilled at enjoying good food, and uh, I, I'm a good dishwasher as well. I wash the dishes. But uh, my two oldest daughters during COVID, you know, they decided that, what are you going to do during COVID, right? The only thing that's open is the grocery store. And so they decided... That, that they were going to really focus on cooking. And so they came up with themes every week of, of food that they wanted to try and food they wanted to make. And it was fantastic. My daughter, Catherine, has an Instagram, food, food Instagram. And during this time, you could see all the stuff we ate. And, and it's, it's, uh, it was incredible. I've never eaten better than during COVID. And I remember that, you know, so when I think of COVID, I think of great food, you know, and, and also it was a great time for our family to come together. My wife and I, we have four kids, and, uh, you know, the time goes fast when you have kids, and we were starting to experience, our oldest daughter had, 
left, gone to college. Our second daughter had left. And right before the COVID lockdowns, we were just kind of like reflecting with each other. We're like, yeah, we, we used to have four kids. Now we just, now we're down to two and they're going to be gone soon too, you know? And so we were kind of mourning the loss of, of our oldest daughters. But then the COVID lockdowns came and they came back home and it was all the six of us together again. So we had this great food. We were playing a lot of games. We were going on hikes. And as we look back on this time, it was a surprising time of just joy and closeness. Now, maybe in a different season of our family, it might not have been so enjoyable. I don't know. But it was a time of unexpected joy in the midst of a terrible time all around us. And for me, it's kind of a parable of life. For those of us who are reconciled to God in Christ, we will someday, maybe a thousand years from now, we'll look back on this time on earth, right, as a time of death and loss and grief, but also a time of sweet joy, a time when we were reconciled to God and we experienced salvation in Christ, when we learned how to love and walk with God, and we learned how to love and enjoy other people. I think that's what Ecclesiastes 9 is trying to teach us here. It's this incredible mix of death and hope and love all mixed together. You know, Danny and I, this last week, we were talking about this passage, and we were kind of talking about what it would be like to read Ecclesiastes before Jesus, right, B.C. And I think it would certainly be more difficult to read it, especially the, the uncertainty about one's relationship with God, kind of like at the beginning of this chapter. Is it love or hate? No one knows, right? It's in God's hands, but we don't know. We don't know what his disposition is towards us. But that all changed with Jesus. It would have been like reading Romans 7 without Romans 8, right? We, we read Romans 7 earlier. Paul ended, ended that passage talking about, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this seems to be where Ecclesiastes and much of the Old Testament in general leave a person when you read it, Right? There is the mercy of God shown to Abraham and his descendants being delivered from Egypt, and God enters into a covenant with them, but, but they fought, fail miserably in their sin, and there's a need for a greater deliverance. And the prophets keep telling, talking about this, this coming one, this coming one, this coming deliverance. And then Jesus comes, and it's only in Christ that we get to Romans chapter 8, 1, where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the, and, the, and the whole chapter goes on to talk about all that we have in Christ, which is summarized in 2 Timothy 1.10. It is Jesus who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. These things weren't so clear before. But now that Jesus has come and he has risen from the dead, life and immortality are very clear, and they are an open possibility for all of us. So Ecclesiastes teaches us how evil death is and how much we need deliverance from the wrath and judgment of God upon our sinful hearts. In this way, Ecclesiastes leads us to Jesus. And this is what the Old Testament does, right? 2 Timothy 3.15, the sacred writings are able to give us the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live like we are dying, to face God's judgment of death upon our evil hearts, 
to look to Jesus for forgiveness and a new heart. And it is here that we find joy in the midst of death and judgment all around us. I hope you found this new life in Jesus this morning. And if you have not, today can be the day that you find new life as you put your trust in him. Let's close together in a word of prayer. Father, we, um, we are sobered by the talk or the words, the teaching about death. It is our reality, for we all must die. Father, help us to learn the lesson that death is. Help us to seek reconciliation with you, seek your forgiveness, seek your mercy. We thank you that in Christ there is abundant mercy, there is abundant grace. And so, Lord, may you just show your grace, shower your grace upon us all here today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.